Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. I begin this recording of this podcast from my car. First time for this. I'm right outside the airport preparing to board a flight, but I wanted to pause before I do to set up today's podcast because I believe it's so meaningful, so worthy, so life-giving, so life-changing, and so potentially life-saving that I wanted to add just a little bit of additional context to it. Way back in 2013, I wrote the following essay after meeting a new friend. It's going to set the stage for our conversation today, so I wanted to read it to you right now before we get going. Here it is. This is from 2013. Gratitude makes sense of our past. It brings peace for today and creates a vision for tomorrow. Melody Beatty. Three years ago, I spoke with the leaders from Northwestern Mutual Office in Greenville, South Carolina. Our meeting was intended as an opportunity for the team to spend time away from their daily work and to reimagine what's really possible in both their life and their business. As the meeting progressed, these leaders were challenged to think bigger, plan smarter, connect their vision to concrete goals, and to develop a plan that allows them to live their purpose and to achieve their goals. The final exercise was to publicly share both their main takeaway from the previous two days, as well as their personal commitment to actually live it. One by one, the leaders stood and they shared actionable ideas from our time together and specific ways they intended to live it. One of the very final individuals to share was a gentleman named Steve Grant. Steve stood He paused, he took a deep breath, and then he shared that five years earlier, he endured what he thought would be the hardest period in his life. It turns out that his oldest son, Christopher, lost his life as the result of a drug overdose. It was a devastating loss for Steve, his entire family, and especially for their surviving son, Kelly. Steve went on to share that just nine days before this meeting, the unimaginable happened. Kelly, his only surviving child, had also died of a heroin overdose. Steve's family, a very typical, healthy American family, had lost two sons, both of their sons, both to addiction. We sat in this room, stunned and absolutely silent as Steve continued. He said, I almost did not come to this meeting. I didn't know how I could apply any of this content in my life in the midst of such pain. And yet, the last two days have served as a reminder that nothing tragic has to be wasted. Not pain, not fires, not scars, and not even the loss of two amazing boys. You asked John earlier for my commitment. Here it is. I commit to beginning an organization that will ensure that other parents don't have to endure what we endured. 
a commit to starting an organization that equips other young people to better battle depression, anxiety, and addiction. I want to leave a legacy so that everyone will know that from this day forward, I did everything I could to help save adolescents from the perils of substance addiction. Steve sat down and the entire room stood up. We stood in awe of what he had endured, his courage to share the journey with us and his willingness to fight on to make others even better. So my friends, that is part of the Monday morning motivation that I wrote way back in 2013. Since that day together, Steve has made remarkable progress in his commitment. He has established the Chris and Kelly's Hope Foundation to fight addiction. The foundation's mission is to provide financial support to programs that treat young adults who struggle with substance abuse and addictions. It is saving lives, it is transforming his community, and it is changing the world. Steve travels the nation as a speaker, an advocate, and the ambassador for this cause. He recently wrote a book that details his experience. It is about to be published. It is worthy. You should check it out. We'll talk about that during the podcast. And in addition to all of this, Steve Grant is a personal friend. So why does this podcast matter to you? My friends, I am super glad you asked. 72,000 Americans died from drug overdose last year. I'm going to say that again. 72,000 people, neighbors, friends, colleagues, fellow citizens died last year due to drug overdose. This is a two-fold increase in just a decade and is single-handedly lowering the average life expectancy in our country. It's a huge deal. This is a pandemic that is affecting all of us, regardless of who we are or what community we find ourselves living in today. This program today, this Live Inspired podcast will be an emotional one, but I also think it's an important one for all of us to hear. Steve is joining me on the Live Inspired podcast today to humanize the topic, one that people often think could never happen in our community or in my family or in my life. Well, today, Steve shed some light on that to help us better understand how this pandemic is happening and what it means to you, what it means to your loved ones, and what we can do about it going forward. My friends, I ask you right now to open wide your minds, open wide your hearts. I have the honor of introducing you to a man that I look up to and a man that I am lucky enough to call my friend. His name is Steve Grant. Steve, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey, John. Thank you so much, and thank you for that great introduction. Well, you you deserve more, but I'll let you do your own bragging during our time together because of what you've been through is a story to which I've never heard anything even close to it. We'll unpack that together. But in addition to that, the way you shine when you walk into a room, the the way you radiate hope and goodness, and the, the way you encourage those around you to become the best versions of themselves, it's very attractive. And I'm I'm lucky to call you my buddy. I'm honored to meet you, and I'm so glad I met you uh, eight years ago, uh, and I was very reluctant to go to that uh, meeting. You, you talk about uh, my son passing away uh, due to a heroin overdose about nine days before that, and uh, it, it really caught me by surprise. Uh, five years before that, his brother died of a cocaine and methadone overdose, and I was unfortunately experienced finding both of them. And um, 
you know, it's, it's a very, very sobering thing to, uh, watch body bags leave your house. Uh. But you know, when I, when I was there that day and, um, I, I, I reluctantly came to the boot camp you guys called it from St. Louis and you and Ben Newman. And, um, I went there because uh, John Tripoli here in our office wanted a little gray hair uh, there. And uh, so I was there and not many people knew about me because they were from three or four, there were a couple of states there, there. And um, so they didn't know much about me. Uh, and you went around the room and before you started, you said, uh, I thought this was going to be about financial services and how to sell more insurance or sell more investment products. But uh, which was the last thing I wanted to hear about probably at that time um, after 37 years or so. And um, uh, you guys right away said, uh, we're going to talk to you guys about what your um, legacy is going to be when you leave this life. So my ears perked up and I didn't have any idea, believe it or not, that Chris and Kelly's hope was going to be in my mind that day. I, I tell you the truth, I'm a very helpful person. I, I would give the shirt off my back to anybody and everybody knows it. But at that moment, I wasn't thinking about getting back. And I wasn't even contemplating what my what my legacy would be uh, when I left this life. And you said that you guys said, you guys actually went around the room. And uh, at that point, I, I stood up and I said, I want my legacy to be that I did everything I could to help people who, uh, young adults and adolescents who struggle with addiction, drugs, uh, alcohol, and um, and mental illness. And and you said, why? And I said, well, I just lost my second son to a drug overdose nine days ago, and I lost my son previous to that five years ago to, to a drug overdose. So, um, you know, I had two sons, very, very good kids, that took very different paths yes. to the same result. And... Uh, uh, but that day, when I when I made that statement, I sort of put the line in the sand, and uh, you guys actually had interrupted the meeting for a little while, took a ten minute break <laughs> halfway through it because uh, I think you all were stunned, and uh, I remember it very well. But uh, I'll tell you the truth, I was not thinking that that day, and I don't know when I would have started thinking about it if you guys didn't bring it up. Well, um, that's the that's the that's the God honest truth. Let's not deflect any of the credit right now. And and you're talking a bit about your story and, and here you are, you self-refer to as a, a little gray hair in the room in the insurance and financial business plan, planning business. Your life a decade before that though, Steve, it, it would have never looked like the kind of life that you ended up living. And I think the reason why this matters is because some people right now are listening to this Live Inspired podcast and they're thinking, man, how tragic that that, that could happen in Steve's life or to those boys. Fortunately, um, we live in a different community or fortunately, we have a strong family structure or fortunately, our kids are making the right decisions or whatever it might be. And yet your argument back was that, hey, this isn't selective on who it chooses. We all have to be extraordinarily mindful that it can come into any family, any community, including yours. That's correct. So let's take that backward just a little bit and, and start talking about uh, about your boys. Because not only does your work today hinge on their lives and their deaths and then kind of transforming it into something redemptive. But uh, th th these were just good-natured, handsome boys. I actually have a picture of them in my office, man. So uh, they remind me to remain steadfast in my hope. So uh, talk about your boys. Let's let's start with Chris. Well, Chris, yeah, Chris was uh, a great kid. 
bright, uh, actually a gifted athlete in soccer and basketball, and took a little while to 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 find himself in both those areas and academically, but he he did. Uh, but he began to use alcohol uh, at 14 years old, and it took us a little while to figure it out. And uh, and he was uh, I, I knew that I always told my boys that there was going to be something that they were going to like out there in that world of alcohol or drugs. And um, because our families on both sides have, have addiction, I wouldn't say raging rampantly, but there is addiction in our, both sides of our family, uh, their moms and mine. So, so um, Chris, it was perfect storm for Christopher. Um, and he went through five different rehabs uh, in a period of seven, seven or eight years. He spent lots of money, all the things that you that you read about and hear about uh, happened to a family with a with a son or daughter who is sick or a family member who is who is suffering from this this disease of addiction. Uh, about happened to us: financial issues, uh, legal issues, uh, the whole nine yards. And ultimately, um, my ex-wife and I and I say ex-wife is because it it, it, uh, it ruined a marriage of twenty five years. Mm. Um, so. Uh, there's a lot of casualties involved, and then ultimately he, he uh, died of a, a methadone and uh, cocaine overdose in our house, and uh, it's just very tragic. And uh, it's hard sometimes to tell people that he was a nice kid. And um, about two months, two about six months ago, I spoke to an audience in in Greenville, about 1,200 people actually, and I did a little research uh, because in 2005 I didn't know anybody lost a child to an, an overdose. I truly didn't. And I, and I don't live under a rock. Right. Uh, I, I didn't. But in 2010, when Kelly died, and we'll talk about Kelly in a second, but when Kelly died in 2010, I didn't, the only person I knew that died of a drug overdose was his brother. Mm. Okay? Well, you know, since that time, like you spoke in the introduction, we have an, we have an epidemic, and we did lose 72,000 people last year. And that's, uh, it's become a, a problem across all spectrums of our population. And, um, but, but it's very tragic and it's, it, it's going to change, uh, but it's not going to be, uh, it's going to take us, it's going to be slow change. Uh, you know, Kelly was very different. Um, Kelly was the, the quiet one that you, you, you sort of worry about. He's very different from his brother. Um, good student, uh, very gifted mu- musician. Unathletic, but tried his worked his tail off whenever he got out there in church basketball or whatever it was, uh, and just a sweet kid. And um, he went out to his university, College of Charleston, where he graduated from actually posthumously. And um, he he uh, fell in love with uh, heroin and uh, at at uh, in his senior year. And uh, eight months after he started, he he died. Um, and, and, uh, it was very tragic. Uh, I knew that he was using at some point and, um, but, uh, he did, you know, you can send a kid kicking and screaming at 14 years old to a rehab program, but Kelly was 24 when he died. But, and so he started when he was about 23 and, you know, you, you can, you can't, you can send him to rehab, but they can leave They're adults. So uh, there was no leverage for Kelly, um, and he did not want to go to rehab, although we offered that to him. And um, 
uh, ultimately he, he died of a heroin overdose in his apartment uh, one night. So uh, very different. Uh, and we, you know, it's an interesting story to a lot of people because I've spoken in many places since uh, you, you helped me start this seven or eight years ago, John, and no one's ever heard of anybody losing no. both their only two children. And, and I think it's happened certainly. Um, but, uh, I, I did meet a lady a couple of weeks ago who lost two sons in consecutive years, but she has four children, fortunately for her. Uh, but still it's very tragic and, uh, uh, and, and, but it's nice to know that, you know, we started something that has helped over 120 organizations and, uh, we've done some great things. So I'm, I'm going to pull you back just a little bit as you share the story okay. of your, your son's lives and addictions and then, and then ultimately their deaths. You, you, you were dealing with this, this challenge with Chris, and it's a challenge that so many families quietly, quietly are dealing with. I'm curious, when you, when you were going through it with Chris, were you telling your neighbors and friends and family members, hey, uh, you know, just so you all know this is going on, or were you, were you trying to shoulder this by yourselves? Well, probably a little combination of, of both, because uh, I didn't realize there were so many things out there uh, that could help me. Uh, even though I, when I knew that he was addicted, uh, when that when his psychiatrist uh, basically said your your son is addicted to drugs and alcohol and and it's controlling his life, you know, you that raised the hair on the back of your neck, and uh, you know, every day there was a story. Uh, that we we could tell about, about Christopher and the things he did, uh, and he I think he truly hated what he was doing. I know Kelly hated using heroin uh, and was ashamed of it. And no one knew it, um, but Christopher, everybody knew Christopher. Eventually, was was addicted to drugs and alcohol, and everything that we tried to do to help him, uh, you know, just didn't it just didn't work. You know, it might be good for a few days after he got out of rehab or a month, and then he'd go back to it. Um, but a lot of parents today. Um, they, they deal with it and they, they do hide it. I speak, I speak to a lot of parents and typically one parent is on board and real aggressive about it. And one of them's not so aggressive about it. And it's the mom, of course, that's, uh, that's more aggressive about helping the child. Um, but it's too, typically there's a split, uh, in, in the two of them, but, um, but I was not, I was very, uh, I was very open about Chris's issues, uh, with anybody who wanted to talk about it. Uh, if, an interesting story. One time, Christopher came back uh, Christmas time to his uh, to Greenville at, during his first rehab, and we were in church. And on a Sunday, we always went. One of the things that we were very consistent in life about was always went to church. Uh, and they knew on Sunday, no matter how no matter how bad Christopher was feeling because he was drinking or drugging, he was going to church with us. He was with. So, so, but he was there and a good friend of us came up to Christopher and Christopher looked good because he had been in rehab for about two and a half months at that point. The first time he looked very good. Uh, and one of our good, good friends said, Christopher, what are you up to? He said, I'm in rehab. <laughs> and which I just listened from behind. I, I was surprised he said that. Uh, he originally told all his friends he was in boarding school. Okay. So, so he told me, he told our friend that he was in rehab and my buddy said, what for your knee or your back? And he said, no, no, for drugs and alcohol. So I was very proud of him, actually, because, uh, you know, he was, he understood the deal. and uh, But it took control of him. And, uh, it, you know, it, it just, 
and ultimately, actually, you know, his death was not particularly a surprise uh, to me, uh, like his brother's was, uh, because because I knew that we had done everything we could do, and and uh, at some point, you know, some the the, the Lord, something's going to happen. He had to have an epiphany to uh, to to beat this. Looking back at at your relationship with Chris, whether it's when he was two or 16 or during the addiction, addictive years, you know, you've had more than a decade now to reflect on, on you and the relationship and decisions made. And I think that reflection may help the rest of us parent and love and lead and uh, serve even more effectively. But what do you wish looking back on it, you, you would have done with Chris? I hear this question a lot. I have, I, I have grief, certainly. And I think a lot of uh, grief is built on guilt. And one thing I don't have is guilt. Mm. I never felt at the time that I did not do everything I could for Chris. Uh, but if I was to do something over again, it would have been taking the advice of someone and sending him to a program that was 12 months, 16 months uh, out west, you know, like a wilderness program that's created for them, you know, a very expensive type of program. Um, and, and I'm not sure I would have worked for Chris or any program, but that would have been the best way to do it for him because Christopher needed to be rewired. He needed to be reprogrammed at 14. You know, when you start using drugs and alcohol at that early an age, uh, it's a, it's a, um, it's, it's, it's a rupture of your adolescence. And Christopher, when he died at 21 was probably maturity. He was probably 16. And, uh, and, and, so we, we attempted to do one of those programs uh, in the middle, and we flew out to Houston, Texas, and went in this place. It was in the middle of nowhere, and uh, I went down a dirt road two miles, and here's this uh, world-renowned program uh, out in the woods, and um, um, I dropped him off. He knew what the deal was. He had been in rehab twice already, but not this type of program. He seemed willing to do it. And, uh, I gave them the $9,000 for the first month. Uh, and I don't know how I was going to cover that check, but I was going to figure that out when I got home. Um, and I drove back to the hotel and I got a little bit lost in the way back because I was flying out to back to Greenville from Houston the next day. And there was a knock on the door and it was Christopher. And <laughs> he had run down that two mile road after he left and he just, and then he hitchhiked back to the hotel. And he almost beat me there. And uh, he, he said, Dad, I, I'm not going. Those people are crazy. <laughs> and I, I said, Fisher, and this is really where the tires hit the road, I think, in terms of at some point parents have to cut the tie um, and, and play hardball, uh, so to speak. And I just said, Christopher, I've got one ticket home tomorrow. I wasn't planning on you coming with me. And here's $20, and I'll – you go either go buy drugs or you buy yourself dinner, but um, I'm 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 going. See you. And I close the door, and uh, I left, and I cried all the way home on that plane. And Christopher spent a few, uh, maybe a week on the streets, and then he actually found a relative in Houston, and he ended up going to high school in Houston for six months, and uh, continued to use drugs and alcohol because the person he was staying with was using drugs and alcohol also. Uh, so, um, it was an interesting time, uh, and an interesting story 
about Chris, uh, and not many people know that, but that's, uh, you know, that's how that happened. So we did attempt to, to uh, going back to your question and my long answer, we did attempt, I do regret that he never went to a program that was uh, a 15-month program instead of uh, 90 days, 90 days, 90 days, 30 days, 30 days, that kind of thing. Steve, when we hear stories like the one you're talking about, um, dropping a son off, going to your motel room, I knock on the door, you hand him 20 bucks, your kid ends up on the street from a place lacking compassion. We can hear that thinking, gosh, man, this family is just messed up. I'm glad I don't have issues like the Grant family has. And yet th- that's not your story. I mean, you, you, were, you were a faithful family, white-collared family, great community Life was good, and it just got derailed, and it went all the way off the tracks. Steve, you, you mentioned when Chris passed away that um, you were full of grief and sadness and pain that none of that m- the majority of us can't imagine, thankfully. But you weren't surprised. And then when Kelly passed, yeah. you were full of those same emotions, but this time, in addition to all of that, you were shocked. You were shocked. So I'm just curious, what what, what caught you so off guard by Kelly's passing? Well, uh, because Christopher, he never used heroin. And, you know, heroin, I, I, I know, John, I'm older than you are. Um, but when you were growing up, you heard about heroin a little bit, you know, and it wasn't in the community. It wasn't mainstream. You know, it, it had a certain, um, let's say, relationship with a small part of our community. And now it's a, it's a major uh, problem. But when Kelly died, I had realized in March of 2010 that he was um, using heroin. Someone informed me of that. Okay, uh, he had I had gotten a bill from a hospital, and uh, Kelly uh, was in a band that was doing very well, and they were at a music venue called South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. So they drove out there and they drove back, and um, Kelly ended up in the parking lot with a girl who helped introduce him to heroin. And he had his first overdose then in a parking lot. And she left him there, but she did have the presence of mind to call 911. So an ambulance picked him up and took him to the hospital. And, you know, that's one of the problems we have here. Here they let a 23-year-old boy out of the, out of the uh, a man out of the hospital. And all they say to him is, hey, you better be careful. You, can, you know, the next time you might, you might die. That's really all they said. So about three or four months later, I get a um, I get a bill from the hospital, um, and I didn't know anything about what happened to Kelly. So I called Kelly and I said, Kelly, uh, you know, I got an emergency room bill here. Um, you know, two things: what happened, and secondly, why don't you just use your insurance information? Um, and he said, Dad, you know, I came back from South by Southwest, and we were exhausted, and I passed out in the parking lot, uh, and my friends took me to the hospital. So it seemed plausible, uh, you know. Yeah. I, I, my eyes weren't wide, my eyes were wide open to a lot of things, but this this uh, you know anybody you talk to about my son Kelly would say that they, they everybody was shocked that he used heroin. He didn't tell anybody. There was only a handful of people that knew. And then in June, one of the band members called me on the phone on a Saturday morning. I'll never forget it. And he said that was not uh, a fainting spell or a pass a passing out in March, that was a heroin overdose. And he had just found out about it. So he called me, fortunately, 
And of course, I just on the phone up and I got up and called Kelly and I said, I'm coming down to get you. And uh, school was out, or I'd just gotten out. And I said, I'm coming down to get you and bring you back here to Greenville. Uh, and he tried not, to, he told me not to. I said, I'm on my way. And I hung up and I got in the car and, you know, I'm praying to the Lord. I said, please, just don't let this happen to me again, you know? So, um, you know, he, he came home for a couple of months and we drug tested him every other day. Uh, heroin is, goes through your body fairly quickly. So, so, um, he was, he was not using, um, and, and, uh, we were fairly certain about that. Now he might've been using something else, uh, but he wasn't using heroin and, um, uh, but he went back to school and I made it clear to the band members that, Hey, if he uses heroin, I want to know because we have a deal that he's going to go to rehab. And, uh, he had agreed with me to do that. And, um, um, something in the course of things, uh, they did call me in September, October and say, Hey, Kelly's using again. So I went down to get him and brought him home. Uh, he reneged on rehab. So we kind of set up a little program with him. And, um, the girl that actually introduced him to heroin sent in some heroin in, uh, in November around Thanksgiving. And it probably sat there for 20 days or so. Um, we think, yeah. And he, and he called a friend on a Sunday night. He called his uh, friend that he grew up with a, a girl and asked her if she had any Suboxone because I'm feeling a little Jonesy. And she said, I don't understand what you're talking about, Kelly. And I don't know what Suboxone is. Um, and, um, Suboxone actually, John is that, you know, a lot of people use it to yeah. get off of heroin and get off of opioids. So when he didn't call me that night at, at several times, cause he always answered the phone or always texted me that he was busy. Uh, I went to his, ha- I went to where his, uh, I went to his house, uh, that we were renting for him. Um, and he, um, I, you know, I found, I found Christopher in his bedroom and he looked like he was sleeping. They had died and Kelly was a little bit more gruesome. Um, I had to break down the door and find him and he was curled up in the corner of a room, you know, with, uh, with, um, something coming out of his mouth and, and a, a needle in his arm, you know? So, uh, it was very tragic, very different. Um, you know, same results. Uh, the coroner said that he had really only one needle mark in his body, um, which was unusual for an intravenous drug user. And that, that told me that he was trying his best. That phone call to his friend, wanting to box him, and the fact that he only had one needle mark in his body, told me he was trying his best to stop. And um, it's just such an attraction. When I first told his psychiatrist that he was using heroin, the guy scared the crap out of me. I mean, he just scared me. He said, Steve, he can't do it by himself. Um, and it is very hard. Steve, you, you share this so matter of factly, and I, I'm recording this with a few other folks who are helping me produce this podcast. And we're all just kind of staring at each other with mouths open because we can't even imagine. I mean, to lose a child is indescribable and to find him uh, unbearable. To have it happen a second time, Steve. The direction you took was to take something tragic and to make it into something as beneficial as possible, not only for your family and your community, but for us uh, at large. Talk about the work that you're doing through Chris and Kelly's Hope. Well, you know, Chris and Kelly's Hope came out of that 
out of that meeting that day uh, of uh, what you want your legacy to be and, and truly did. Didn't have any idea that I was going to leave there thinking about starting a foundation. But I did, and, and uh, I'm glad I did. It was quickly embraced. I've never, I've never um, in the seven years that we've done this, and we've done some great things. Uh-huh. Uh, I said earlier, we've given out money to over 120 organizations really around the country. Uh, as you know, I work full-time, and uh, I, I say I do this part-time. It kind of goes in spurts. But we've been fortunate to, to raise a, a high six-figure amount of money and give it all out. Uh, we give it out every day. Well, it's in- incredibly inspiring. And, and I have a couple questions for you as we begin uh, concluding our time together. One of the very first questions on my mind is, as a father of four little ones, 13, 11, 9, and then a little 7-year-old girl, and a friend to a whole lot of folks who are raising their own kids, what, what advice would you offer to us to, as best we can, keep our kids safe and making the right decisions? I know that's a very broad, difficult question to answer, but give us some practical ideas that we can actually put into play so that this isn't our story later on. Sure. You know, I um, when I realized that this was an issue, because um, I started to find beer cans underneath sofas, uh, I had a carpet cleaner guy come in, and he said, you know, you got a bunch of beer under, this, under these sofas. You know, I said, what? Beer under our sofa? And, um, you know, and then liquor bottles uh, hidden behind couches and things like that. You know, I started getting very proactive. Uh, so a couple of different things that we implemented right away was um, I actually called up some, some of Christopher's friends, parents who I knew very well. And I said, you know, you don't want your children hanging around my son, which is a very odd thing for someone to do. Um, tell someone that they shouldn't have their son play with their son or visit over. So uh, nobody was ever going to sleep over our house again. <laughs> so, and it's because uh, they had to leave their book bags and things like that in the downstairs mm-hmm. out of the bedrooms. Uh, we leave the doors open. Okay. Uh, so we kind of implemented that rule. Uh, you know how you, you probably your, uh, your older children spend the night sometimes at friend's house. Yes. Um, well, well, we, we always would say, Christopher would always say, I'm saying, spending the night at so-and-so's house. I said, well, have so-and-so call me. Have so-and-so's mother give me a call. Um, this way I know. And then ultimately what would happen nine times out of ten, uh, his plans would change. That's right. <laughs> and, and that's because, uh, you know, he was either not staying there uh, or he was staying there, but he, uh, he, the parents didn't know about it. So, uh, we, you know, we started implementing those, those things, took the, took the liquor out of our house, uh, those kind of things. But, but, but the, the broad brush on this, I think, is communication uh, and always having an interest in, in where your children are and what they're doing and who they're doing it with, I think is very key. And letting them understand that, that you understand. Um, uh, they, they do have to take healthy risks, but um, to grow up, but, uh, you want to protect them as much as possible and you communicate. And, and I say that, I say that, and my sons and I communicated uh, very openly about a lot of things when, they, from, from a young age on. And, and, uh, so I'm giving you advice that didn't particularly work in my situation. Uh, but, but, but I think I keep going back to that and the people are professionals that I talk to. Uh, clearly always say the same thing. 
that it has to be an open lines of communication and, and the parents have to, have to be willing to talk about some of these sensitive issues. And I know that I know that many people in this town have said, Hey, I know a guy that's lost both his kids. The does, drug overdose. Does that, does that fear, does that fear work not only for the parents? Clearly we're listening, but do you believe that, uh, when I tell my children your story, and I have told them repeatedly that they're actually hearing what I'm saying, and that it frees them to make the right decisions going forward. Uh, no, I, I I agree with you. Uh, it doesn't, and and uh, it it amazes me. Uh, we had a young man in Greenville this year that died of a heroin overdose, uh, one of many, but his friend was lying next to him, and uh, his friend was passed out, and unfortunately. The young man didn't wake up. So he woke up the next day with his close best friend dead on the floor next to him of a heroin overdose and fentanyl, which is uh, obviously a, a bad mixture today. And um, you would think that that young man would say, I'm done. You know, I'm not doing this again. Well, that young man passed away uh, a month or so ago. So, Steve, if, if those two friends can't figure it out, the second boy in particular, and then your sons with your great parents and then your wives at the time, and and then for Kelly to see what happened to Chris, if if that can't wake people up, tell us why we should believe that there's a, there's reason for hope that the rest of us can figure it out. Well, I think by and large, most kids, most kids uh, and parents do figure it out. Uh, you know, I speak to different, I go to a high school here in Greenville every year. It's a charter school. And I speak to every grade from six to 12. Okay. One day. So I have the sixth grade in there and then seventh grade, eighth grade, you know, and we raise hands about, uh, people who understand what drugs are, the names of drugs, things like that. And it's funny, the hands get, a lot of hands get raised, uh, in the sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, because we're talking about using, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you get to the oldest kids, you get 10th, 11th, and 12th, and you don't see as many hands raised. And uh, I always get trouble. I, I love speaking to people about this topic and about my family and where things could go and what things have happened. But I struggle many times talking to children or young adults, adolescents, because you're right, I don't know who's listening. Really, I don't. And but 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 my hope, my, my hope is and feeling is, if one person's listening, uh, that then I've then I've accomplished something. Uh, I I was with the group one day, and it was actually that high school I was talking about, and a girl started crying in the middle of it, and uh, she came down, and I gave her a hug, and of course I quickly gave her to the resource officer at the school, but obviously. Something I said, uh, and it wasn't the death of my two boys. It was definitely that it was uh, something that she was doing or one of her friends were doing, and it was real. So, uh, but you're absolutely right. Um, sometimes people have to put their toe in the water, unfortunately, or they have to touch the fa- the flame on the fire to understand that it's hot. And, uh, and but, but thankfully, I think most people back up and they get they get away from it. You found a picture of of your boys, and on the back were three words. Will you, will you tell our listeners what those words were and who wrote them? Uh, uh, my son, it was a picture of my son, Christopher, playing soccer in the ninth grade in high school. 
uh, he was, he was a varsity basketball player, ninth grade varsity soccer player at a very competitive school. So he was a good athlete. And my mother found this picture of when this was this was after Kelly died. So it was uh, five years after, six years, seven years after both of my sons were gone. And she saw this picture and she showed it to me and she said, "Where? What's that picture?" I said, "That's Christopher playing soccer in ninth grade." She said, "No, no, no, read the back of that picture, Steve." And I looked at the picture and I almost fell down. It said, "Don't forget me," and it was in Christopher's handwriting, which was very poor. And um, so he obviously wrote that at some point. Uh, and, uh, uh, so that was a very, that was a very, an aha moment and it's always kind of sat with me and, uh, uh, we've also, you know, we're, 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 uh, writing a book and we've written a book and it's, it's going to be published uh, sometime in the uh, first quarter of next year, uh, with a publisher out of New York and a publicist in Austin, Texas. And the name of the book is don't forget me. And, uh, and, uh, we struggled with the name a lot because that obviously is about Christopher wrote that message, but I'm sure Kelly would have wanted us right. not to forget him either. Uh, so, so, uh, yeah, that was, that was quite a thing to see. And, uh, it's amazing how, uh, uh, these things kind of fall into place. Steve, when you, when you wrote that book and I've had the pleasure of reading it and was deeply moved by it, of course, when you pour your heart into that process and into those words and into those pages, and then you then you share it with the world at large, what, what's one thing that you hope your readers might receive as a result of reading your book? My closest friend in the world is a guy named John Lady, and he read the book and he said, "You know, Steve, I never knew this happened. I never knew any of this stuff. I how, how good a friend could I have been?" Uh, and I said, "You know, when you have an addicted son like Christopher was, uh, every day was a story." And, you know, who wants to be around someone who's complaining, right? So the book tells the story, but the reason it ends up getting written is because I found uh, James Campbell, who works with young adults who are addicted and, and adolescents and has run a rehab facility, and he's a writer. And he said, I'd be honored to write this book with you, Steve. So I would tell James the story, and he would say why this happens. My hope is that the book... That reaches people like you who have four kids who are healthy, but you're concerned about driving, you're concerned about issues, bullying, you're concerned about drugs and alcohol. Um, uh, you know, not, not, to, not to wear them out about it, but, you know, it's always in the back of your mind and you're talking about these things. And this book, uh, the, the, I got an email today from the guy who read the book two days ago. And he said, Steve, this book has to get in a lot of people's hands uh, because this is an instructional guide for parents, basically. Uh, and it is. Well, I, I've known you, of course, since we met in Greenville years ago. And I've shared the story a couple times, both through social media, our newsletter, and also a, a different radio program we used to be part of. But it was in reading that book that I recognized, man, I got to bring you back onto our show because it is such a powerful story. And now there's a guidebook, a roadmap that that the rest of us can can learn from. I, I, I call you my friend and I mean it, but I felt like in reading that book, uh, you weren't just my friend, but like we were dear, dear friends. And uh, you really opened up your heart in ways it had never been opened up before. So I'm going to encourage our listeners to check out the book, Don't Forget Me. It's coming out either late this quarter or early next. We will remind you through the podcast when that happens. 
And uh, I'm going to encourage you to not only read it, but to pass it on. There's clearly an epidemic, but there's also reason for hope. Steve Grant, as, uh, as you know, we, we wrap up every podcast with what we call the Live Inspired Seven. And these are seven questions that tie all of our great guests together. And question number one, my friend, is in addition to the book, Don't Forget Me, what's the best book you've ever read? The best book I've ever read uh, was this, uh, the title I can't remember, but it was a John Grisham book. We're going to go with, uh, what's a John Grisham book? Any time to kill? How about the time uh, to kill? We're doing a time to kill. Uh, yeah. That's perfect. So uh, what, what is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a child that you wish you exhibited as brightly today? Uh, I was a risk taker. Um, as a child and growing up not, 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 and sometimes they weren't healthy risks, but it wasn't drugs and things like that. It was, it was mischievousness. Uh, <laughs> I sometimes wish I was more of a risk taker as an adult also, but I'm not. And I'll ask you the third question after I uh, acknowledge what you just shared there. If you think about taking a risk nine days after you arrive on the scene and find your child, your second born, and now your second that you've lost already in a corner, uh, dead and then bury this child and then somehow breathe again and breathe again and wake up nine days later for you to come into a leadership event tells me everything I need to know about your boldness and your daring and your ability to t- take risks. So maybe you're not try- climbing trees quite as high as you did when you were seven, but I think you are reminding the rest of us how high we can climb in our lives if it's really just not about us. And f- from our friendship, Steve, that's what I take from it. Uh, if your home caught fire and all living things are out, your animals, your spouse, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item that really matters to you, what would you grab? Uh, I've taken into consideration that my wife is running out too. She's so safe. I would grab her. <laughs> okay. Um, I would probably grab a picture uh, that's very important to me that is on our website, uh, Kristen Kelly's Hope's website. It's a picture of the three of us uh, that, that we, we use a lot. The, the picture you're referencing of uh, you and your boys, that's the one we have in our office. And I think you, you both are, two of you are wearing red, one's wearing blue, and it's a beautiful picture of three boys, you and your kids, alive and well and shining and radiating joy. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. If you could sit on a bench, Steve, overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who would you want to be seated next to? Mickey Mantle. <laughs> what would you what would be the first question to Mickey Mantle? Uh why is why is such a guy is so talented? Uh uh, ends up, you know, it had the reputation of being, you know, an alcoholic and uh, and uh, someone who uh, abused his body so much, but was so so gifted. Mm. What's what? If you had to assume, what would his answer back to you be? I think it'd be about a lot of things we talked about today. Agreed. Um, that that you know that something controlled him that he couldn't have control over. Steve Grant, what is the best advice you've ever received? Uh, 
The best advice I've ever seen, I actually asked this question. I've been asked this question, and I'll say the same answer. Uh, I always, I, I, somewhere along the way, someone said it's not always as it seems. And uh, I used to tell my kids that. It's not always as it seems. So one day I was driving home with both the boys, and they were fairly young, maybe 10, 12. And Christopher says, Dad, I got to tell you a secret. And I said, uh, well, you, you got a secret. Why are you going to tell me? He said, well, I'm going to tell you. My, my friend so-and-so, who we knew his parents very well, um, they're getting divorced. And, uh, and I said, um, they seemed very happy, but we, my wife and I knew that there was wrong, there was struggle there. But Christopher couldn't see it, of course, and it seems too young. Um, and I said to Christopher, you know what that is, Christopher? He said, it's not always as it seems as that. And I said, that's exactly right. Powerful. Because uh, as you're saying that story, I'm thinking of you and all you've been through and all that you've lost and uh, all that you are now giving. And it's not always as it seems. So th- uh, thank you for sharing that bit of advice. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Uh, my 20-year-old self, I would have said to him, uh, try harder in everything that you do. Um, I was a scholarship baseball player uh, to uh, Furman University, and uh, I was a fairly gifted athlete, actually, but I never understood it and never realized it. Mm. And uh, I do tell in the book that I was a lot like Christian, was a lot like me. He didn't uh, didn't understand it. I didn't understand it either. Uh, but uh, that's what I would tell that 20-year-old, to keep working harder because you've got some talent and you need to work a little harder than that. Steve Grant, it has been said that all great authors and I'm on this podcast with one, all great insurance leaders and financial planners and dads and uh, sons and speakers can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Steve Grant, how would you like your one sentence to read? Ooh. Well, I guess it's my elevator speech when I talk about, uh, my elevator phrase when I talk about Kristen Kelly's hope that I did everything I could to help young adults and adolescents who struggle with uh, addiction and substance abuse and mental illness. That'd be my sentence. Steve Grant, you uh, are doing that. And uh, not only that, you're following the advice from your sons not to forget them, that we all deal with demons, we all deal with struggles, we all deal with addictions. And uh, you remind us that we're not alone and that there is a way forward and that there is reason for hope. And I'm grateful that you are doing this. And I'm even more grateful that I get to call you my friend. Same here, John. My friends, that is Steve Grant. I am John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired. Live inspired.